President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go Indiana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm Diane Christman, Senior Vice President and Chief Program Officer of the Cable Center. This season, we're exploring the many facets of innovation within the cable broadband industry. We're presenting brand new content as well as segments curated from the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today's episode, Leghorn's Legacy. The late cable pioneer Richard Leghorn was an MIT graduate, a military hero, a White House advisor, and a compassionate human being. In 1984, when Dick was preparing to sell his last cable system, he wanted to give back to the industry that gave him so much. He envisioned the potential of developing an industry-wide research and development organization that would allow cable companies to cooperate on research and create technical standards. In 1988, his vision was realized when Cable Labs was incorporated. Dick passed away in January 2018, just three weeks shy of his 99th birthday. Here, introduced by industry journalist and analyst Stuart Schley and Cable Lab's Chief Strategy Officer and Curio President, Ike Elliott, is Dick Leghorn's excerpted oral history. Before listening to the oral history recorded by uh, a a true legend in the cable industry, Dick Leghorn, we wanted to preface this with a chance to talk briefly with Ike Elliott, who is the chief strategy officer for for Cable Labs. Cable Labs, Ike, has been celebrating this year, 2018, its 30th anniversary. Might not have ever happened were it not for the individual we're about to hear from. Um, How do you regard or characterize Dick Leghorn's contribution to this industry? Cable Labs owes a huge debt of gratitude to the founders of Cable Labs who had the vision to, uh, to create this organization. And it's had such profound impact on the industry over the years. And, and the primary originator of the idea of Cable Labs was Dick Leghorn. And he was an amazing visionary uh, for this industry and, and for our organization. And we're so grateful for him and the, the legacy he's left us. Uh, a fascinating story you're about to hear. Uh, among other things, Mr. Leghorn was a bomber jet pilot in World War II, and uh, his story is truly amazing. Ike, thanks for the preamble. Here's Dick Leghorn. Hello, I'm Craig Cool. I'm a journalist covering the cable television industry, and today we are very privileged to have Mr. Dick Leghorn here, who's had a fascinating uh, career both uh, in cable and out of cable. Uh, he's been a real pioneer in this industry from a technology and communications standpoint. Uh, he's had a, a spectacular career and a very, very impactful career uh, in public policy pre-cable days. And he is part of the uh, uh, Cable Center Oral History Series. I'd like to introduce you now to Mr. Dick Leghorn. Dick, welcome. Yes, it's thank great you. to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm going to enjoy it. You've had a, uh, a very fascinating, uh, very uh, 
uh, long career uh, spanning approximately seven decades is from what I'm reading here. Eclectic, as I say. Eclectic, <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, let's rewind, if you will, and uh, I'm going to let you tell us your story from uh, your early days at MIT. In fact, even if you want to go back to your World War II uh, work, we can start there. You start where you want to, uh, and then uh, you can lead us up to, to your, uh, your, your work with Cable Labs. Okay, I think I can tie all that into Cable Labs, if you like, because, uh, what do they say, the son is the father of the man, or something or other. The, uh, <clears throat> uh, because I, all my, as I look back, the result of people doing our histories like you're doing now, I look back over my career and I realize there was one theme through the whole whole thing, or one uh, talent or one uh, tendency. And that is, uh, and people have asked me frequently how I get these ideas and stay with them and, until they become reality. And what I've found in thinking about it is you got a good idea and you float it to the world. <laughs> And it doesn't take, never takes the first time. You back off, and now I used to keep banging away and that doesn't work. You back off and you wait until the time's right and then you float it again. Hopefully it'll take that time. And that's what I've done. It takes normally, I found, about 10 years between getting a good concept. If it holds up, it may be 10 years before, before it, it, it becomes reality. And let me, let me take, uh, well, for example, the U-2. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of uh, uh, World War II, I'd flown uh, high-altitude photo reconnaissance over uh, the German territory in uh, World War II. And by high altitude, I mean as high as you can get. We, we used to say we were hanging on our props, which is then in the mid-30,000 uh, also, which is nothing now, but you had to be careful because uh, you could fall out of that into a spin with a P-38, which I flew. Uh, you could, only 50% of the time the guys get out of a spin. It was very hard. Anyway, so at the end of the war, I uh, was called, I was on terminal leave. I had about six months of terminal leave because I hadn't had any in this one month for every year of service. And uh, fellows called me and said, uh, hey, Dick, let's bring you back into service. We're going out to Bikini and, and explode a couple of atomic bombs. <laughs> that was the Bikini Atoll yeah, atomic yeah, test, Yeah, exactly. Right? And uh, at the time, I've been told since, that only, only 200 people, Americans, had seen these things go off. And boy, I was impressed. There was the ABLE test, which was a, a, a bomb drop, just like the drop from an airplane. And, uh, and then there was the Baker test, which was underwater. And the thing that impressed me most was watching, we were, I think, 25 miles away, circling with planes loaded with cameras and, and, and uh, instrumentations, because we did all the aerial instrumentation and so forth. And the uh, thing that, well, when the, we all wore dark glasses and you had to put them on because uh, that, that, that light came instantly and then the sound wave came and boy, it bounced the plane around, I'll tell you, even 25 miles away. But the thing that impressed me most 
was a battleship. What they'd done is taken the whole uh, uh, fleet items from the, from the Japanese that had been captured and put them in this atoll, Bikini Atoll, and uh, in the underwater one, it was 50 feet underwater, <laughs> one, one of our pictures so, showed a battleship, you know, how heavy, how many tons of battleship it was, up on the side like that, wow. destroyed completely. And I knew then that uh, uh, we shouldn't have another, we couldn't afford to have another war. Oh, just couldn't. So I became very interested in arms control and disarmament with a bunch of guys and uh, spent a lot of time uh, doing that sort of thing. But uh, uh, well, I was, well anyway, that's, uh, so, uh, well, between, let me come to the, uh, well, the U-2 the overflight, because I knew, oh, I then, uh, Churchill gave his Fulton, Missouri speech, you know, about the Iron Curtain mm -hmm. clanking down. And I had some personal experiences with it, I almost didn't get out. But anyway, uh, I knew that we weren't getting anything out of spies or travelers, which you normally do, and we knew nothing about what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. And what was happening was the, our generals and admirals, not knowing anything, would say, we gotta have so much money and so much procurement for arms control. And the Soviets, seeing us build up, would build up, and it was leading to this arms race. And what really stopped the arms race was our photography, because we found out uh, well, the most uh, impressive thing was when we first got the reconnaissance satellite going on the first satellite, we took, uh, we covered as much territory as all the U-2 flights had in the previous 10 years. But, because uh, that was carefully controlled by Eisenhower personally, because it was obviously spying and against international law. And, uh, and you may remember when uh, Gary Powers was shot down on, uh, May 1, 1960, it was such an uproar, and they used, so Eisenhower then canceled all the U-2 flights. But fortunately, and I'd been involved in this, the planning in the Pentagon, we had the reconnaissance satellite coming along. We, we uh, took first pictures and returned them in uh, October 18, 1960, uh, August 18. So fortunately, we had, we anticipated this, and, uh, uh, well, some of the, when I was called back to service, time of career for two years, I uh, was called into the, white, into the air staff and asked to do the planning for the development of uh, the intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities of the Air Force. And so at that time, all the, from World War II, all reconnaissance was done by taking airplanes and bombers and taking out their guns and bomb base and stuffing them with cameras and electronics. And because you had to fight your way in. And I said, again, this is conception, that's not the problem now. The problem is getting this information pre-D-Day, I call it pre-hostilities, and they became known as strategic guns, overflying. The only way you could get in was fly as high as possible. And knowing a bit, having, Spent some time at Wright Field, having 
uh, learned something about aeronautical engineering, I described technically this airplane in a paper when I, in 1946 to a group of, uh, given to a group of uh, uh, Air Force generals, including the chief of staff. Well, they listened, <laughs> and nothing happened. <laughs> and and uh, so when I was called back uh, in time of career, I, I, I took this proposal into the Pentagon and went through it to what was called the Air Weapons Board. It was two-star general rank. They didn't get it. And because, again, they were so interested and focused on combat yeah. reconnaissance yeah. and not this pre-D-Day idea just uh, was so different from anything the Air Force was. And institutionally, let me put it this way, institutionally, the Air Force was absolutely incapable of doing this thing. They just were so wedded to this. Yeah. Well, when I was called back, well, finally, we got the CIA interested, a name Dick Bissell, and we formed, thanks to Benny Shriver, who's a four-star general who understood this thing I used to work with, uh, we got a partnership going between the CIA which and the Air Force, and the CIA, uh, and this is the U-2, the CIA uh, did uh, all the uh, security and they knew how to keep things secret, and also how to do cover plans. And, but, and they also bought the camera equipment, and the Air Force provided all the support structure and all the testing and everything else. It was really a partnership, even though the, the CIA is given uh, the credit for this corona. Corona was the uh, super top secret thing. It was a, it was a, uh, over, it was U-2 basically overflying USSR in peacetime. And uh, this, the security was very, very tight. And the cover plan, they called it Discover. And it was a scientific thing. We put in mice and dogs and <laughs> everything else. And uh, if it hadn't been for Eisenhower, the thing would never work because we had 13, this is a very novel thing, this uh, reconnaissance satellite. Uh, I'm coming from the U-2, the reconnaissance satellite was the same structure. And uh, the, the reconnaissance satellite, it was the 13th attempt before we brought anything back successfully. And if it hadn't been from Eisenhower, we, we, that, that was very expensive. Today, we had committees here, committees there, would have killed and killed before we got there. But Eisenhower, who'd been really worried about surprise nuclear attack, remember he went to the Pearl Harbor thing. I mean, he'd been, so, and he was very sensitive to uh, surprise attack. And the thing also was right through World War II when we had so-called Battle of the Bulge, uh, where there was the last effort of Hitler, he threw all his troops and, and reserve in, and we finally stopped it, because that was called the Bulls. Uh That caught him by surprise. Now, we, we, I flew all the reconnaissance of my group, and I, I was a combat reconnaissance pilot, but I was a group commander, and we had, uh, we had two, by then, two photo reconnaissance squadrons and a bunch of visual reconnaissance and night reconnaissance squadron. But anyway, we overflew that whole activity and 
uh, we caught absolutely sucked in uh, for two weeks and uh, after the German offensive and we couldn't see anything, pictures or visually. Finally, there was a crack in the clouds. One of our visual pilots picked up what we called MET, Mechanized Enemy Track Transport, a column going in, and we knew then that, that uh, we knew the Belgians was starting with this uh, German attack, which was their last gasp. Once they lost that, we just marched across uh, Germany into Berlin, or to Berlin. And <clears throat> the, uh, so uh, Eisenhower understood surprise attack, and he was very worried after the war about nuclear surprise attack. So um, he, he supported all these failures in the constant satellite because he knew he had to get that information. The only way he was going to get it was uh, uh, overflight with U-2s and reconnaissance satellites. That was a, a long story, but it was an example of taking a concept. It took 10 years before it was reality. We, the paper I wrote in 46, and the U, first U-2 flew, flew on July 4th, 1955, uh, nine years. And I began proposing reconnaissance satellite, and I was called. I was called back to the Air Force in '51, '53, time of career. And even before, I, I checked into the right field office and went over to the aircraft lab and say, "Hey guys, we got a. What do you have that flies high?" And that became the uh, the background for the U-2. And I began trying to sell it, and, and unsuccessfully, until this general Ben Shriver recognized the value, and he called me into the Air Force and into the headquarters, and I told you I headed up all development activities for intelligence and reconnaissance, and we highlighted the strategic reconnaissance. But to get the reconnaissance thing going, we had more darn trouble because, uh, well, anyway, the, 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 it took about 10 years from then until the first Oh, 51 until uh, 1960, nine years. So when I came to, uh, back to the reality of the cable industry, uh, when I, I had this, this, this way of understanding these concepts and knowing it took time to get them going. But I proposed, I started working on uh, uh, my proposal for, for uh, cable apps, which is the reason I'm getting this <laughs> award tomorrow. This afternoon, yes. <clears throat> and uh, the uh, I remember there was a uh, board meeting. I was on the NCTA then, uh, 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 the board member, and uh, I served for 12 years. But there was a meeting I remember of the board at La Quinta in California, and I made this proposal for R&D consortium. What was the date? When was this? It was in 84, because we, uh, Congress had just passed, it was about to pass something called the Cooperative Research Act of 84, and that spelled out that companies could get together and do R&D collectively, uh, which normally would have been a no-no from the standpoint of antitrust laws, but it defined a bunch of rules, and if you follow those, you were immune from antitrust laws. And actually, Cable Labs and Dick Green 
uh, with his efforts, took better, the cable industry, more advantage of that in developing new capabilities than any other industry. And uh, I'm bouncing around a little bit as I told you I might for your association. The, uh, uh, the uh, looking back over this 20 years that Cable Labs has been going, I recognize that in, in the beginning, the industry was way behind. Take broadcasters, they were kicking the hell off cable in a business sense. And uh, Hollywood was not cooperating. They, uh, because we didn't have a decent copy protection thing, our release windows, they call it, came way behind everyone else. Whereas now it's uh, right up there with, with the release to motion picture theaters. Sometime in advance of motion picture theaters, we're able to get this things for, for the cable industry, uh, their pictures. And of course, uh, entertainment, Hollywood stuff, and sports, all the things driven, everything is those two types of content. In Cable Labs, I proposed the thing, and at this board meeting, Keen, I remember, everybody yawned. They were very polite, listen, and yawned, because everyone's so busy, uh, all cable CEOs are so busy uh, acquiring other systems and chasing franchises, franchises and that they just couldn't be bothered with this notion of R&D. And uh, the, the time went by, and I remember distinctly, because I, and I've got the copies of these letters for you, uh, in the briefcase I brought in. I've got all the documents that support what I'm saying. The uh, uh, Jim Mooney, who was then uh, president of NCTA, my goodness, I saw him last night, and he was a very smart guy, and he'd listened to that thing, and he, he called me and sent me a letter in October of 87. He said, Dick, the time has now come for this thing. <laughs> and send me a letter. So I wrote him a letter from all this stuff. He reconvened a, a committee. He wanted to put a committee, have NCTA organize a committee to get Cable Labs going, an R&D consortium for the cable industry. He recognized from the beginning, he's a very bright guy, that he, it shouldn't be part of NCTA. And NCTA was so busy lobbying, short range thing, they couldn't possibly handle this right. And f look, a lot of industries have tried to do this and they put it under their trade association, the broadcasters in Hollywood. It doesn't work <laughs> because they tend to focus on short range things and to improve, doing better, using technology to do better what they're now doing. And that doesn't get you out ahead, uh, which is what the idea was behind Cable Labs. You would do that, but you'd also reach ahead. Uh, so uh, we organized this committee, got John Malone to chair it. And John, as you remember, was the 800 or 1,000 pound gorilla <laughs> of the cable industry in those days. And, and that's what made it go. There were three people, or two people, uh, really, that, uh, you know, no one does anything by himself, but it was so helpful. It, it wouldn't have happened, Cable Labs, without Jim Mooney and John Malone. Jim Mooney recognized the need for the thing, set up this committee, and support NCA supported it completely, provided men, gave us, gave us a budget to get started with, 
And uh, then John Malone taking on the committee, and that really, and uh, we organized this committee, and the uh, first meeting was in January. We, we were all organized as a company by May. We sent out a letter which John signed proposing that the, remember this whole, was this committee was there. We fortunately got this committee of cable leaders and proposing this, it was approved by this committee and proposing that the cable operators join, pay two cents a month, which we figured how we came to two months is an interesting story itself. And uh, what happened was we thought maybe half the industry or subscribers industry representing half the subscribers uh, served by Kerry would join up. But actually we got 85% fairly immediately. And uh, it, was, it was amazing. Because we sent this letter out June 9th. I've got a copy for you. <clears throat> and um, and we by August we had these people signed up. We hired uh, one of the top, rec the top recruiter of technical executive hydrate and struggles. And we looked as getting our CEO, which we got aboard in, in October, so I got an agreement. And we looked at, uh, oh, they looked at, they have thousands of possible candidates uh, because they've, they've uh, working with other, uh, they have them all on databases and all the recruiting firms kind of share at this point. So we started with 200 names that were pulled out, worked it down to 20, and then worked it down to six or seven, and then had our committee uh, uh, interview all these fellows. And uh, uh, Dick Green, uh, I, I just insisted that he, he was the man. He uh, stood out above all the other people we interviewed, including folks from within the industry and outside the industry. At the time, he was uh, a senior VP technology and operations of the PBS system. And he understood this concept. People talk about technological advance uh, having in three stages. Uh, uh, invention, uh, innovation, and diffusion of technology. And invention is uh, invention uh, and patents and all that kind of thing. But innovation is a toughie. That is the introdu introduction of a new technology into the marketplace successfully. That requires adding to the technological opportunity, market pull, and operational capability, financial, uh, marketing and all that as a business function. And so that's, a, and then, the, the, well, in organizing cable labs, we focused on that innovation stage and we left uh, invention to for, for the suppliers, software, hardware and software, and if a cable operator wanted to do it, fine. But all the system work, the systems engineering, what was called interoperability, getting all the pieces to work together, uh, was a function of cable labs. And Dick Green was the only one that really understood this. Furthermore, he had worked with a membership organization, like the, you know, the PBS stations where in getting all those people to pull in the same direction took certain skills. And that skill is what 
has made, I think, one of the reasons he's been so successful. He, uh, you know, the cable uh, CEOs, uh, particularly that time, were a bunch of wild cats going their own way. <laughs> and he pulled them all together and got them moving in the same direction. He's still doing it. And in setting up cable labs, we recognized that this was a business function, this innovation. And we wanted to have CEOs on the board, which we did. As you know, you got people now like uh, uh, Bill, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Glenn Britt, and, but most particularly Brian Roberts. Brian and his father, Ralph Roberts, Ralph Roberts, and uh, were very, very supportive. As a matter of fact, well, and the other people. So we, with that committee, uh, organized uh, by NCTA, we uh, got this thing going. And by having the CEOs participate in the thing from the beginning, it became a business function. And uh, it wasn't just the fact that they would support it financially more easily because they were involved in the board of Cable Labs, but they understood that it was important to, to, to get the possibilities of opportunities from new technology and to improve their business capabilities. And uh, so it's been very, very successful. One of the reasons, of course, is we've had the CEOs controlling the board uh, these days, particularly uh, uh, Brian Roberts and uh, Glenn Britt, they sort of alternated as being chairman. Brian's the current chairman, I guess. Brian's gonna be with us, and I gotta congratulate you, Brian, for really having made the thing uh, a possibility. Oh, one other thing. <laughs> when we got Cable Labs going, uh, Dick Green, by then on board, he asked me if I'd come back and do some work in, uh, on the telephone industry, how to get cable into the telephone business, because they've been trying and done very well. So I organized a committee, and I went to Ralph Roberts and said, Ralph, I can't do this job. I don't know anything about telephone telephony. Uh, I'd like to get some of uh, Mark Kovitz's time because he was a very good strategic planner. And uh, Ralph said, help yourself. So that started uh, Mark's working with Cable Labs. And as you know, he's intimately he's involved with the committees and working with Cable Labs and also with, with Comcast. The big, so that has greatly facilitated moving technology into the cable offices, and, and you got to give Mark and uh, Brian uh, a lot of credit for the success of uh, cable apps going forward. What would you feel at this point, Dick, to be probably cable labs' greatest achievement? And in, in your impact as well, you know, your, what do you feel that you have, uh, um, you know, contributed to cable labs? as a legacy for you in Cable Labs? Well, uh, uh, good question. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Cable Labs, the cable industry, took better advantage of the opportunities from the, the uh, communications, uh, I mean, the, the uh, Research Act, of Collective Research Act, of Cooperative Research Act of 84. And uh, uh, as a result of that, well, let me say that, maybe I mentioned this, in uh, 20 years ago, the broadcasters 
business-wise, were beating up on cable. <laughs> and the telcos were doing the same. And Hollywood wasn't giving us release window. Today, <laughs> with broadcasters, it's reversed. <laughs> cable success is really giving uh, broadcasters a bad time. The telcos were sort of uh, neck and neck with from being well behind. And uh, as far as Hollywood goes, they give us all the early release windows because the work we did on coffee protection, and that's what they needed. So uh, those are, broadly speaking, the uh, contributions of cable. You can talk about their technical things. I now worked up into Doxus and Doxus 3. Doxus 3.0 is going to be the main engine going forward today. And it came out of this uh, earlier concept. Uh, and it's going to, I think, uh, change or keep the industry going. And sure, as you know, Doxus, one of the things it does, it puts four, these six megahertz channel, the normal channels, glues them together so you can get higher speeds, which they talk about, and you can distribute more cost-effectively, a lot more programming, a uh, cable operator can. And that, uh, that has got us well ahead of telcos now. Uh, Verizon, with their Fios, their optical fiber, is beginning to catch up. And some of the cable lab studies show that uh, uh, in three years or so, the two industries will be really kind of neck and neck and will stay that way. So it's, the competition isn't real <laughs> going forward. Well, cable labs, if it hadn't been for cable labs, we wouldn't be there. And uh, so uh, it's been a very significant uh, contribution to the, the success of the industry. Our, our function of cable, as I said, was not invention, was improving the business capabilities of the industry. And uh, it's been extremely successful. Uh, no other industry has done anything like it. Uh, and uh, I could uh, elaborate on that point. The uh, uh, I've been trying. Uh, Cable Labs has not had the recognition that it deserves, and that's one of the reasons. Like when Dick asked me to come down here and get this award, I wanted to start the process of giving cable industry recognition that it deserves. Another thing I've done is talk with the Sloan School at MIT, which is MIT's business school, as you know, is uh, does more with technologically based companies than anyone from Harvard Business School focuses on financial base. And they're going to do a study of what Cable Labs uh, has done and in uh, comparison with other industries. And I think this is going to get that study out and journalists can take advantage of it and they will begin this process of getting Cable Labs. The recognition that it deserves and because it's well ahead of any, it's put the cable industry well ahead uh, of its competition and uh, deserves a lot more recognition for what it's done than it's got so far. And that's one of the reasons I'm down here <laughs> to start that process going. You know, moving forward with cable labs, you know, let's maybe look five years down the road now. What impact do you see cable labs having on not only the cable industry, but the telecommunications industry as a whole. Uh, where do you see some of the, uh, the key components, key areas that Cable Labs can make a, a contribution 
to not only the cable industry, but to communications in general in the next five years? Yeah, and let me, if I will, take the next 20 years. <laughs> Some months ago, uh, Dick asked me if I would uh, write a memo on my thoughts on the next 20 years. I spent some time on it. And uh, he's now, he's circulated somewhat, no one has raised any problems, so uh, I think he's going ahead and planning to do uh, move cable labs in that direction. But uh, the first thing was uh, uh, to innovate uh, the model the model, business model of the cable industry because it's, it's done a terrific job uh, exploiting its present model, but one of the impacts of technology is going to be to change that. I like to quote Joseph Sumter. He was the Austro-American economist, wrote the book on uh, creative uh, destructive destruction of industry and the impact of uh, technology on industry and his contention was that it's the root of capitalism uh, because of this uh, uh, dynamic or creative destruction as he called it and the uh, companies that uh, appreciated this and adjusted would go on and flourish those that didn't will die and the f example I like to use is the uh, uh, transportation when the internal combustion uh, engine was invented. The people did the trans people transportation was the carriage trade, the buggy whip people as we used to call them. They didn't get it, and they just faded. And but a lot of entrepreneurs started these automobile companies. So they, they finally concentrated in uh, in uh, Detroit. But that's a good example of uh, this. Uh, creative destruction and the fact that you needed to to, uh, to go ahead, you had to understand this process. And so Cable Labs, I think, has helped and will help in the next 20 years uh, the cable industry do that. Now, as a specific example, and I think it's going to happen, cable will move from its present business model to become, in effect, a competitive carrier. So uh, I think it will move in this direction and will carry uh, programming with, uh, limited by the antitrust laws, which basically is now just 30-35% of the uh, programming can be carried by cable. And, you know, Comcast is going through this now. The, the government isn't letting them expand beyond 30% of the uh, programming. And uh, that will continue. But cable labs, uh, uh, cable industry is uh, sort of drifting toward this uh, being a carrier. And I'm saying you've got to be careful, guys. You'll end up with a dumb pipe unless you take your, most of your capacity and make it a private competitive camera and just leave a little bit of it to be the common carrier to take care of the, uh, uh, the political types in Congress, because it's going to come in the Cooperative Research Act of uh, the next, well, the, excuse me, the rewrite of the Communications Act, the last time it was rewritten was in 96, is beginning a stir in Congress, and, and uh, cable labs better get, cable industry led by cable labs, get ready to deal with that. And uh, 
one of the things I'm doing for fun <laughs> is uh, writing a, a draft testimony for that and uh, trying to deal with all my thoughts on the policy issues going forward and doing it as an example of what cable, cable industry has got to do to get ready for that rewrite or it'll end up the wrong way and they'll, be, they'll end up as a dump pipe, which is what they, you know what I mean by the mm -hmm. dump pipe. Yeah. They're all afraid yeah. of it, the common carrier status. Um, next 20 years. So that, that is, is uh, the most important thing and the most controversial is to work on innovation for the business model of the cable industry. And uh, I could go into other things, but maybe there isn't time. But that's so important and f most controversial that I've started to push it. You know, Dick, let me ask you this. Well, was there um, sort of maybe branching off of cable apps now and kind of rewinding for a second in your, in your cable career? You know, during your, your phenomenal career, as, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, through these years in a number of different areas, was there one defining moment or influence on you that, that sticks with you the most? Um, was there a defining moment or time that convinced you that the cable industry was, was a, an industry that uh, would be not only a good business for you, but you know, would really impact and change uh, the communication world? <laughs> Let me give you two things that happened to me. Uh, Cape Cod had a summer home with a huge antenna, huge, <laughs> very ugly. And my wife is complaining about it, so I said, well, honey, that's easy. Call up the cable company and get cable. Well, of course, there was no cable. And so I started Cape Cod Cablevision, uh, made every mistake in the book, <laughs> fortunately learned from it, finally ended up with, uh, we started making 10, 10 miles, and I won't go through all the mistakes. The first one was, of course, to, uh, to try and do a lease back with a phone company and they squeeze you so you couldn't make any money. You had to put in your own <laughs> cable <laughs> to the home. And we started with 10 miles making all these mistakes and ended up with uh, 27,000 subscribers which I sold to John Malone and uh, well we closed the deal in 80, we signed in 82 and he finally closed on, in 84. And at that point I said I gotta hand something back to the cable industry. I really felt I'd done so well uh, I had seven or eight cable systems, of which Cape Cod was uh, my favorite because I lived there. And uh, uh, so we started cable apps. The cable industry didn't have anything like that. So that sticks in my mind. Uh, is how, how I got into the cable industry and got interested in, in uh, the R&D consortium for cable. I wanted to hand back something. I do something for cable because it's done so much for me. So, anyway, that's answers those questions. What about the, you know, your your involvement in in technology and communications from from early in your career? You know, how how influential was that? How much of an impact did that have going forward? Uh, I, I'm sure that a lot of that uh, contributed to your work with Cable Labs and. How, just link, link those together, if you will. When I was uh, 15, as I recall, uh, 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 MIT used to have open houses for young people. And I went in, 
And uh, I went around, physics, particle physics was just then coming into its own, it was the thing, and I was absolutely fascinated. And decided to go to MIT. And, but instead of getting into theoretical physics, I got into applied physics. And one of the reasons was, uh, uh, well, there was a guy named Dick Feynman who was brilliant, and he later, he stuck with it, and he was, uh, and he had a Nobel, he died a few years ago, Nobel uh, laureate, and, and uh, so I got interested in applied physics, and therefore, in thinking about applications, I began to understand, began to think about this process of innovation, how you, that's part of applied physics, how to get, uh, physics for me was always, uh, you know, it became a, conceptual thinker, that's one of the advantages of studying physics, which regardless of whether you apply it in detailed sense. And uh, so that's when I first got interested in this uh, function, and uh, it led to uh, cable apps, because I was interested in... in uh, now, I, after I got out of MIT, I went was hired by Kodak, and try to get something going here. Actually, I made a proposal that Kodak acquire the technology of a guy in Columbus, Ohio. I'll think of his name. And he had a, he was working instead of a, with a, a silver. He was working with electrons. And, uh, you know, Cable wasn't interested because I mean, Kodak wasn't interested because they made their money by having silver, and it required huge factories, huge investment, and nobody else could do it, <laughs> except Uji eventually. But, uh, so, it, 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 they didn't like, they didn't get this idea oh, that imaging would come with electrons. And the fellow named Art Tyler and I, because he was a, real physicist, PhD, we got together and left and uh, started uh, iTech, which in the beginning was, was aimed at doing that uh, kind of thing. Ty, uh, kind of link us up now with your early technology, you know, experiences. Oh, uh, yes. And moving in and how that applied to, to well, cable. I, when I went into cable labs, I mean, to Kodak, uh, they weren't doing this and, and I, I started pushing. But uh, World War II was brewing and, and everyone knew it was going to come. So six months before Pearl Harbor, about nine months, I uh, volunteered to go back in the Air Force. I was in an ordinance and I said I'd go back in and, and uh, George Carter, who ran a thing called a photo lab at Wright Field. And uh, so he uh, put in for me and I uh, ended up uh, six months before Pearl Harbor working for them because it was very clear by then that World War II was, was coming. And uh, so we got into that sort of thing for the Air Force at that time, then the Army Air Corps. Talk to me a little bit about some, some of the innovations in cable that you see being of importance in the next five or so years, not just through cable labs, but in general, some of the new technology, some of the new innovations that you feel are going to have a significant impact on the industry. Oh, let me answer that question in two ways. I think uh, from an engineering standpoint, the DOCSIS 3.0, and that's gonna really 
have a major impact over the next 15, 20 years of the, on the cable industry. But the next thing is, is, is research, the, the, the new things that are coming along. And I've recommended to Dick that he gets a couple of sciences in to begin tracking these things. And the first is, uh, is quantum computing. Because uh, quantum mechanics, you know, deals with uh, subatomic atomic particles, and they. Uh, I saw some of the first uh, computers based on this uh, five or six years ago at MIT, and I just knew this was spread into communications, computers and communication. They both use information, the same thing. So the other one is uh, nanotechnology, which is uh, dealing with uh, particles that are molecular in size, bigger, and uh, so that's that's going to have a big impact on 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 the, on the information industry. The information industry is going to get wild as these your ability to handle these small particles <laughs> increases, and uh, the cable industry has got to be aware of that and start following it and be prepared our last trump to, to make adjustments or they'll be they'll fade away look back on your career now and when people are at a cocktail party 25 years from now and your name comes up in a conversation what, what do you want them to be talking about you know it's sort of come up here and that's uh, uh conceptual thinking and getting new concepts into the marketplace, which is uh, the practical application, and which is behind uh, Cable Labs, and I hope I keep continuing to do that. As a matter of fact, I am. I think I've got some things in mind that are going to happen 20 years from now. But anyway, that's why I've forgotten what I'd like on my gravestone, but I've got a way of saying this in a few words. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here, and, and congratulations on your award with Cable Labs, too, by the way. And we're uh, really delighted to have you part of the, the oral history series for... Uh, yeah, well, thanks, because uh, this your writing, I'm sure, will help uh, some of this uh, recognition that I may or may not deserve, but it's always welcome <laughs> when you get it. So thanks very much. Well, you've, you've been a real contributor to the industry, and, uh, and I know that everyone is real proud of that, and, uh, and glad you're in the cable industry. Thank you. Well, this has been uh, uh, a pleasure to interview Dick Leghorn. Dick uh, is now going to join the archives as uh, a member of this oral history series for the Cable Center, and we just want to thank Dick for being here. And um, from New Orleans, uh, thank you. You've been listening to Leghorn's Legacy, part of the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. For the Cable Center, I'm Diane Christman. The Cable Center is a nonprofit industry organization that connects people and ideas to advance innovation. Today's podcast was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the Cable TV pioneers. Supervising producer and writer is Leela Kakoris. Please join us again soon.